We've not just designed the world, we've diagrammed it. Hi everyone, welcome to a new episode of Data Stories. My name is Enrico Bertini and I am a professor at New York University in New York City where I teach and do research in data visualization. Right, and I'm Moritz Stefana. I'm an independent designer of data visualizations. In fact, I work as a self-employed truth and beauty operator, normally out of my office in the countryside in the north of Germany, but right now I'm in the Bay Area uh, helping a few tech companies with their data visualization needs. But I'll be back soon, no worries. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> yes, and on this podcast, we talk about data visualization, analysis, and more generally, the role data plays in our lives. And usually we do that together with a guest we invite on the show. That's right. And we have a fabulous guest coming up. But just before we start, <laughs> a quick note, our podcast is listener supported. There are no ads. Uh, but that also means if you do enjoy the show, you could consider supporting us. You can either do that with recurring payments on patreon.com slash data stories, or just send us a one-time donation on paypal.me slash data stories. Okay, so let's get started. I, I am very excited as well. So today with us, we have one of my favorite researchers in the world. Uh, we have Barbara Tversky. Barbara is a professor of psychology at Stanford University and also a professor of psychology uh, and education at the Teachers College at Columbia University. She's a leading cognitive psychologist, and she's done a, a lot of research in in on spatial cognition and cognitive psychology in general. And of course, as you may imagine, is highly related to to data visualization and information design. So, welcome on the show, Barbara. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. So, we always ask our guests to introduce themselves at the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What is your background and main interests? Uh, thank you. As you said, I'm a cognitive psychologist. I'm a bit of a contrarian. And when I entered graduate school, the view was that thinking happened in language. Language was the basis. And I started mm -hmm. thinking that spatial cognition takes up half the cortex. It evolved before language. Animals mm -hmm. can do very intelligent things without language. They can even tell the difference between 80 and 85 things without counting. That wasn't known then. Babies do intelligent things without language. So it seemed to me that spatial cognition had its own logic different from language and preceding language, and that that needed to be explored. So I, I sort of went about it first here and there, and then I realized that I was on a path that made sense, and first looked at how we brought the mind into the world, or the, the world into the mind, the spaces that we inhabit of our body, around the body of, of exploration, and how they are distorted by our perception and action. And then I got interested in the spaces we create in the world, not just for physical well-being, but really for cognitive well-being. And those things are around us everywhere, the notes we take in classes, and certainly the visualizations that both of you create 
so beautifully. So that that and then the design of the world. So that occupied me step by step through a, a long career. <laughs> Yes, and I think this is the main basis of your new book. It's called Mind in Motion. And um, it's a fascinating journey around um, these topics that you, you, you just mentioned. And I guess um, many years of, of, of research. And I'm wondering if you can give us a very short summary of what the core argument of, of the book is. So the core argument is that spatial thinking is the foundation of all thought. It's not the entire edifice, but it's the foundation. And the evidence comes from brain work, I'll say a bit about that. It comes from language, um, it, it, and it comes from gesture and visualizations, which use space and marks in space in meaningful ways and are a much more direct way of communicating than language. So if I gesture something's up or say something's up, you know right away what it means, whereas the words differ in every language. So back to, back to the brain work. The brain work was really cinched by the Nobel Prize, I think, in 2014 which looked at rat hippocampi, hippocampus is a rat, and found single cells that respond to places where rats are as they explore. And there, next door, one synapse away, were cell, grid cells that mapped these places on a map by proximity. And subsequent work on human beings established that the place cells represent ideas or people or events in time, and then they get mapped on a temporal or conceptual or social space on the same grid cells. So the same brain structures that subserve cognition also sub subserve con conceptual thought. So that, that seemed to cinch the case and that The work on humans is very new. It's the last four or five years. So it's taken time. The work on language, think about how we talk about ideas. We talk about ideas as if they were objects. We raise them, we kick them around, we put them forth, we tear them apart. And I don't think these are metaphors. I think we have no other way of talking about ideas except as if they were objects. The talk gets into gestures, so when we raise ideas we make a gesture of raising. When we tear them apart it's a gesture. And again those gestures communicate very directly. And we have nice evidence for that, so do others, that gestures help your own thinking and help the thinking of others. Yeah, it's 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 amazing how going through the, the pages of your book, I kept thinking, oh my God, even this one thing is is all about space, right? You you provide so many examples, and in the end, it feels pretty much like everything <laughs> everything we do with our brain has some connections with mm -hmm. with space. And of course, then you have a large section on your book where you talk about how this translates into 
the way we think with with visual representation and diagrams and 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 all the rest so that's that's really fascinating thank you i mean you even think we all have to move in space in order to survive and interact with things in space even plants that are rooted to the ground need to need to move toward the sun or away from wind so that they need to be active and acting in space, even plants. So it, it feels in that way that spatial cognition had to be important to life from the get-go and that life, that evolution builds new structures on old. So the fact that, that abstract thought is based in in spatial thought that can be quite concrete makes perfect sense. Yes, I think another thing I really like about your book is that throughout the book, as you provide, as you describe research on spatial reasoning and, and many examples about the way, the way space plays a major role in the way we think, you also lay out little by little a number of laws of cognition. I think in total you have nine laws of cognition and, and you keep in talking about them in different different examples throughout the book. And um, I'm wondering if we can, if you can describe some of these laws, I guess we wouldn't have enough time to go through all of them, but um, these are so useful. It makes you think about how things really work. And, and many of them are about trade-offs, which I think is really, is really important in, uh, in visualization design. Um, can we talk about some of them? I think maybe we can start from, there are no benefits without cost. Uh, sure, thank you. Yeah, I, I really brought them there partly to show that what's happening in spatial cognition is far more general than than just spatial cognition. So no benefits by, uh, without cost and trade-offs. And I think it's really hard for people to think in terms of trade-offs. Categories are, are more useful, and we tend toward categories. The polarization in the world now is bringing a, a continuum into polarized categories, and they're very efficient. They summarize a lot of knowledge. They allow us to respond very quickly. So babies come into the world not knowing what are chairs and tables and carrots and people and trees and bicycles, they don't have these categories, but they need to form them very quickly so that they can act in the world and respond to those things. We need to know right away, is that edible or not edible? Is it threatening or not threatening? And, and so that we form those categories very quickly. They make cognition efficient. They allow us to act quickly in the world, but they have a cost. We can make errors. We can think that a toy pistol is a pistol, or that even something that isn't gun-like is a gun. So we can miscategorize. That's the cost of the benefit of categorizing. And I think people sometimes lose sight even of that, that they say we stereotype and categorize as if doing that were bad, but we can't function without it. Mm, sure. Yes, we make mistakes sometimes and have to find ways to prevent some of them, to recover from some of them, and so forth. But 
we can't help but do it. Yeah. So no, no, uh, no model is perfect. Of course, the, the map cannot be as large as the territories. Is that also what you're saying there with uh, respect to cognition? Yeah. I mean, I think people want firm guidelines, do X, mm -hmm. do Y, but those, any of those firm guidelines are going to have a cost and we have to pay attention to both the benefits and the costs. Mm -hmm. Do you think this is also related to, to say, heuristics, right? The fact that we can, we can very quickly make decisions with heuristics, but of course, as we know, sometimes they're, they're wrong, right? So again, I guess th there's a trade-off there. We are either fast, but wrong or slow, and then, and then it takes a long time. Right, and, and being slow doesn't guarantee that we'll be correct either. Because some, <laughs> By the way. some problems are just too hard to solve. We don't have enough information. Um, we're, our imaginations are limited. But sure, it, 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 the, the quick categorization certainly maps onto what Kahneman and others have called System mm -hmm. 1. Right, and the slower way of thinking on system two. System two is also going to be spatial in many cases, that we arrange our thoughts in hierarchies, sometimes in categories, in orders, and so forth. So even system two will have a spatial basis in many cases for how we organize our thinking and how we organize our problem solving and our creativity. So. I guess one, um, I, I, here I want to make a slight jump and contrast learning and creativity. So learning, we need to learn certain things like how to solve algebra problems or how to, how to count, how to multiply, um, how to make sense of certain things, and we overlearn those, and they require having an, a strong association from A to B or A to B to C and so forth. But in order to be creative, we have to unlearn some of those things. And so there's even a tension there of what benefits learning and makes us more agile in, in the world and solving certain problems works against innovation and creative thinking where you have to violate that ABC order and come up with other orders. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess it's, it, you don't just look at the cognitive, um, at what's happening in the mind, but also what's the goal of the task. And in some cases, we want to get rid of those fast associations and think completely differently. And I think this is this is also related to another law that you lay out in your in your book. Uh, that's the third one. It's called feeling comes first before recognition, which I think it also has um, interesting parallel with the way people actually perceive visual information. Um, can you briefly describe what what this law is about? So, so this is work of Bob Zions, who's unfortunately no longer with us. He did recognition memory for meaningless shapes. So he showed meaningless shapes over and over again, and you had to say, was, did you see that one before or not? So that's memory. But he also assessed feelings, how people, whether people like them or not. 
And it turned out that the more frequently you would see this shape, the more you liked it. So that's perhaps a lesson in, in, in social attachments as well, that seeing someone frequently can, can engender affection. But what happened in sciences studies was that people, the liking increased before the recognition memory. So people, somehow the affect system sensed that this was a familiar object, but the memory recognition system didn't realize that that particular meaningless shape had been seen mm-hmm. before. So people were quicker on the affect, building up affect and building up a memory. And they're independent, which again I think is interesting. And it's reflected again in a phenomenon that I didn't research, but others have, prosopagnosia. So there are people who can't recognize faces. They know it's a face, but they don't know whose face it is. And this can be extremely embarrassing. You meet people on many occasions, don't recognize them, and and um, they may be insulted. So now that it's known that that's something that the brain does, um, I think it's, it's socially easier. People compensate by picking up voices or picking up clothing, but it prosopagnosia can be a problem. Nevertheless, it does not, in prosopagnosia, not recognizing individual faces, doesn't interfere with recognizing the emotion on the face. So mm-hmm. again, these systems are partly different and, and adding to the mysteries of the brain that you can, again, somehow recognizing a face, recognizing a nonsense object is independent of recognizing an emotion that's associated with the face or the object. Yeah, this makes me think about what what do you think is the role of, of feelings and emotion in more specifically in, in in data visualization. I think that the there are people who've been discussing about the the role of emotion in visualization and also and also about how pleasing something is. This makes me think about um, I think there was also um, a book published by by Don Norman a few years back, discussing the idea that that pleasing things are not just pleasing, which is important, of course, but they may also help people um, perform better in general, right? So there is also a crossover to to say usability or or functionality. So there's not necessarily a a dichotomy between something that looks or feels good and something that helps you do things better or, or right. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's an important point. I mean, it, it, too much emotion can be distracting. You want the feelings to engage people, to learn more or see more, especially with a visualization. You don't want to leave them just in a state of bliss or a state of fear. <laughs> you want to engage them. And, mm-hmm. and certainly those things can engage. They're a kind of social glue. Um, I remember going to a conference once where someone, a product designer, was showing a coffee dispenser that was dressed like a butler. 
and bowed slightly when it gave the coffee. <laughs> and it, it was, right, it was amusing. It warmed you to it. It made you in collusion with it. it so it, it established a social bond very quickly. And, and sure, visualizations can do that too. And I mean, in some, if you look at human beings, perhaps most abstractly, I'm not sure that's the right word, but approach avoidance is a, is a big thing throughout evolution. Should I get mm-hmm. closer to something? Mm. Should I move away? And that's emotion, and, or that's the, the, the essence of emotion. There are many different emotions, but are there ones that bring you closer or want you to go closer and one that want you to go mm. away? So humor and, and aesthetic appeal um, can bring us closer, make us part of, feel good about the brand or about the visualization, certainly. What making a visualization aesthetically pleasing, using fruits and vegetables, for example, to display um, quantitative information, what that can do, too, is make it memorable. And you look at all these graphs and line charts and bar graphs that come out of Excel programs or some other program, they all look alike. And by the time you've added some humor or some aesthetic value that's individual to a visualization, you've made it distinctive. And again, you want it to be in the service of the information, not just decorative or clutter, but something that is inherent in some way. Yeah, and what I found really interesting here is that the... Well, first of all, some people maybe in the past thought, oh, the mind is like a computer or eyes are like cameras, right? And they work very objectively, very simple. And I think the last few decades have shown this is not quite the case. And and as you just said, the the tone and the whole like non-explicit and non-verbal dimensions of, of communication are so important also in how, how we then perceive the message. And uh, if I read the middle of your book, right, you, you're even saying it can even override the whole content of what, what's what's happening, or we cannot maybe even conclusively separate actions and perceptions and and tone and content because it all becomes part of this um, blended experience, and and our prior knowledge or our feelings might even override what we see or not see in a given situation. Is that right? Jerry Brunner and Molly Powder years ago did a lovely experiment where they showed people photographs. And one group saw the photographs in full focus and had to identify what was in the photograph. The other group saw them out of focus and they gradually came into focus. But as they were, they were some of them were very unusual fo- uh, photographs. The one that I remember best is an odd view of a fire hydrant. So people looking at the out-of-focus fire hydrant would generate hypotheses of what it might be. And then when it was in full focus, couldn't see what it was. <laughs> so despite the fact that it was in full focus and they could see it, it was right in front mm-hmm. of their eyes, the prior hypotheses prevented them from seeing what they were seeing. So this is an example of confirmation bias, but it's it's such a concrete example. You're looking at it and you still can't see it. 
and I think as far as the looking goes, that's true of many scenes in the world, visualizations, that seeing it isn't understanding that it takes more effort and more mm-hmm. work to understand or even identify what it is you're seeing. And it's something that I think lay people may not under, even professionals don't understand. <laughs> when you and I are looking at the same thing, we're not seeing the same thing necessarily. This reminds me, I think there's that there's a paper that has been published last year uh, that tries to investigate exactly this this kind of problem when, with data visualization. I think it's called The Curse of mm-hmm. Knowledge in, in Visual Data Communication. And, it, and it's beautiful. It, it actually investigates exactly the, the, the law that you describe here. They, they show the same, the same graph to, to different people and, um, and people see completely mm-hmm. different things. <laughs> and it can be manipulated, of course, according to what, what aspects of the, of the graph are accentuated or highlighted. So, um, I, I, I think we have, we have this, this weird notion that, um, there's a neutral way we can extract information from, from visual representations, but nothing can be further from the truth, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, an example, no one can see the cover of my book now, but the cover of my book has something that looks like a network. Mm-hmm. And it turns out to be a man running. And there are people that look at the cover and see the network or constellation, don't see the man. (laughs) And there are people that see the man and don't see the the constellation. And they, again, they're looking at the same thing, but Mm. getting very different interpretations of it. That also hints at that we just... Again, don't see things as they are, whatever that means, but more always look for what is it, what could I recognize in that, right? Or what, how could I categorize that, uh, as you hinted at at the beginning? And that we, we can't help it. <laughs> it's just what we do. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, Lee Ross, who's a brilliant social psychologist, calls it naive realism that we assume uh-huh. that everybody else is understanding the world the way mm. we are. I have a cousin, and before an election many, many years ago, he said to me, I don't see how anyone can see the facts and vote for anyone but X. And my thought was, (laughs) I don't see how anyone can see the facts and vote for anyone but Y. So that, that assumption that we're all reading the facts the same way is is also incorrect. And another example of how cognition mirrors perception, that the same phenomenon that's happening in our perception of space and perception of things in space is happening in our abstract thinking. Mm And just to, so we can close that arc, because the book has this beautiful arc. You start off with all, all these fundamental laws of cognition, all the things we've learned. And then towards the end, uh, yeah, sharpen really this thought about like how spatial thinking is about on the foundation of everything. And then to me, this sort of surprising and really cool twist that, well, on the one hand, we think spatially and, and a lot of our like internal, you know, processes have, have spatial dimensions to them, but that we also bring that back into the world and sort of flip this whole relationship between the mind and, and the world. And 
maybe uh, you could tell us a bit more about like how how thought flows back into the world and and what that can tell us maybe about cognition and data visualization. Yeah, sure. The world that we inhabit is so different from the world that our cave-dwelling and nomadic ancestors inhabited, where most of what was around them was mm. designed by nature. There were small things that human beings did, and but most of the world was by nature designed by... If you fly now over the world, there are very few places that haven't been cultivated in some way by people. And nowhere is that more obvious than in our homes and in our cities. So we organize our bookshelves by orders. We organize them by topics, so they're categorized. Our kitchens have plates on one shelf and bowls on another, and they're organized by size um, and shape so that we've got categories and subcategories, namely hierarchies, in mm -hmm. our in our homes, in our kitchens, in our bathrooms, in our bookshelves, it, certainly in our grocery stores, the vegetables are one place, the food are another. Again, different categories and subcategories. Our homes also have another way of organizing things, not categorical, but themes. So they bring together a number of different objects that um, are used for the same purpose. So in the bathroom, we'll have everything for cleaning from different categories. Yeah. The kitchen, everything for cooking, but again, from different categories. So those ideas about themes go into our broader cognition as well. When we're working on a project, we bring together everything that we need that's relevant to that project, or we're making a, a decision, what home to buy, what stock to invest in, which way to go when we're on the streets. And again, yeah. we're bringing together all the information that seems relevant to solve that problem. So themes, categories, hierarchies, we have one-to-one -one correspondences in our mm -hmm. table settings. Everyone gets a plate and a knife and a fork and a napkin <laughs> and a glass. And you can see that in facades of buildings. Every apartment has a certain number of windows, maybe a balcony um, associated with it. Mm -hmm. um, we have rows and columns in our buildings. So <laughs> there is, we have recursion and repetition, again, in facades of buildings. Palladio was certainly yeah. acutely um, aware of that, symmetries, repetitions. So there's a great deal of abstract knowledge that we've put into the world. Mm -hmm. And the, those... They don't intentionally communicate, but they certainly communicate to us what what's going on there. Yeah, yeah. This is what I find so mind blowing is that when you have, let's say, you have a well organized kitchen, right, or a well organized workshop, the thing becomes a map of itself in a way that we, let's say, in one drawer you put all the cutlery, and then you subdivide the cutlery into other things, and then you have eight knives and and twelve forks, and they sort of represent themselves on on that mental map or that physical map you have created and and basically as you organize things so you can find them more easily or work with them in a good way you're also creating a diagram of of that thought process maybe does that make sense yeah no absolutely and if if i'm looking at, at the world i know it was designed or i could it's a good 
A good anesthetic was designed by a human being, and for a reason. And then I can mm -hmm. try to figure out the reason. Why was it designed this way? What is it telling me? And then those, and those patterns are good gestalts, so they catch the eye. They're not mm -hmm. random. They're organized, so they catch the eye and, and provoke our thinking. And then the next step really is that those patterns, rows and columns, we turn into visualizations. So <laughs> yeah. the, the periodic table, uh, train schedules are rows and columns, very much like the rows and columns on, on buildings. So, so is thinking and data visualization mostly about tidying up? <laughs> Would you say it has a little to do with that? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think, sure, I, you know better than I, but yes, we're yeah. putting things into cubby holes or piles as in bio, yeah. bar graphs. And, and yes, organizing numbers and smoothing them out in some way. Mm -hmm. So I, 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 and then if you go one step further, we've not just designed the world, we've diagrammed it. So if you look at an overview of an airport, There, there are paths for the trucks, paths for the airplanes, paths for people, where they can go, where they can be, the suitcases and the, the meal trucks all go in different places. So it's, it's a diagram governing people's movement and machines' movement in, in space. And the same thing happens in the streets where bikes can go, buses, if you can turn this way or not turn that way. So we've diagrammed the world as well mm -hmm. as, as uh, designed it. And I bring those thoughts together in a term that's not a very pretty word because Latinate terms aren't very pretty. It's called spraction, which is a contraction of space, action, and abstraction. <laughs> so so the right. idea is that actions in space create abstractions, like the one-to-one -one correspondences and, and categories and hierarchies. And those actions are actions of our body mm -hmm. that create these spaces, and they turn into gestures on thought. Mm -hmm. So it, it, we, there's a sort of cycle of creating abstractions with actions and the actions get truncated into gestures and the structures that we've created, the rows and columns and one-to-one -one correspondences and categories get turned into visualizations that convey information deliberately. So yeah. it's, a, it's a kind of cycle that, that you can enter at any point. So one thing that, that keeps on coming up when we try to transfer that to, to design, like information design or interface design. So on the one hand, I, I totally agree and it totally matches also my experiences that if we design something in a way that resembles the natural world, that people have a, a much better grasp on it. It's like if, if the metaphor you choose for representing information, maybe, or the, the, let's say growth Uh, something grows that it becomes bigger or it goes up you know that's something okay that totally makes sense if you like grew up on planet earth and and sort of have observed the physical world um on the other hand we're dealing with things that are sometimes very abstract and high dimensional and and very complicated or they don't even have a good correspondence in the physical world, right? It, like all the things happening online or in, on like this, this super complex systems we have built. 
So would you say we should always still find, try and find a physical metaphor because our thinking is intrinsically so physical and spatial that anything else is, is just will never be so successful? Or are there some things where a high degree of abstraction and leaving the physical world can, can even help with, uh, with uh, perception or cognition? So, so just the way you lay out a diagram is, is meaningful. You just said it, that good things go up because they, mm -hmm. you need health and wealth and resources basically to fight gravity. So a bar graph might be abstract, but the numbers go up and the quantities go up and so mm -hmm. forth. So that's a very abstract way of bringing in the, the concrete spatial world. I think networks do it as well. Our minds go from thought to thought along relations, the way our feet go from place to place along spatial paths, and people abstract maps or environments to um, essentially networks, and then those networks can represent very abstract thoughts. So I, There's a modicum of space in, in any visualization. Now, it might not get back to trees and growing, but certainly our concepts of up and down and connections between ideas or connections between computer networks or social networks um, have a spatial quality that I think people quickly abstract. Mm. More of a metaphor is is going to be connected to the um, to the content, and there's always the worry that some metaphors may interfere because they don't mm -hmm. go all the way, and people can make inferences that aren't right. So I, I worked with a colleague in chemistry, or several colleagues in chemistry, and they love animations that show chemical bonding or something, mm -hmm. and. I look at their animations, and in fact, they. This is a story for them. So it's it's hydrogen and, and oxygen. There are red balls and white balls, and they're going to bond in in the visualization. If you're looking at the right place at the right time, you might miss it otherwise. But when he asks people afterward, what are they seeing? They say things like, "I saw the red balls pushing the white balls to join." Mm -hmm. So there, there's no pushing of those molecules. They're moving <laughs> randomly. But yeah, our yeah. human visual system can't help but see causal connections. Yeah, yeah. And that's going to interfere with thinking about chemical bonding as random. And the right. movement is being in any... Yeah. That upward movement may not be different from downward at that scale. So there's some... And that's a metaphor the students put, but it was frequent enough that it worried the designers. So that, again, that how human beings interpret what's going on, we need to be aware of so that mm -hmm. the interpretations don't interfere with the concepts. Right, yeah. And again, just understanding how people talk about these things or having them here explain what they think they have seen. Um, Yeah, can reveal all these things. And I think we should do that much more. Just <laughs> have people tell us what they are seeing and the things we produce there. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree more. We ran one study comparing displays that were tabular to displays that were line graphs. It, and it gave people, asked people just to make inferences. Mm -hmm. 
and they, they loved it. They, they, they loved making inferences. But when we had nine line graphs, they couldn't, it was over time, they couldn't help but seeing things as, as processes that occurred over time. The tables gave them much more freedom to think about other things. And like, why are people in the same place? It was people in different places at different times. Is there something about the place, not the time? So those two ways of visualizing produced very different kinds of inferences. And which one you want to buy? So they bias people toward making certain kinds of inferences and not others. And mm. as a designer, you probably want to be aware of that and design something so that people will make the inferences you have in mind or give them the freedom to make many. One thing I was also thinking about, if all of our thinking is spatial and like rooted so much in the physical world, shouldn't we build much more like sculptures or like spatial information displays or installations or, or use virtual reality? So, I mean, there are always questions about that. What do you want people to learn? Right. And, and what's the base, or infer, and um, what's the best way to display it? And it's going to be different things. I should say it's very hard for people to, to think in three dimensions. It uh -huh. seems surprising because we negotiate right. a three-dimensional world, but architects design their plans and their elevations on different pieces of paper mm -hmm. because the plans are two-dimensional, the elevations are two-dimensional, and thinking right away in three is extremely hard. Product designers say the same thing, that they need to do a two-dimensional cut of, of things that thinking in depth is hard. So people can get trained to think in depth, but it's yeah. usually... The training is usually specific to a particular kind of visualization, so it won't transfer to another kind of two-dimensional two or three-dimensional yeah. display. So that's something that, you know, computer scientists often create these wonderful environments that people can't really comprehend in an abstract way. If I'm moving through it and avoiding objects, that's one thing. But if I'm using it to understand a multidimensional world, it, it might be extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. So, right. I mean, we have to take a, account of what, of what human beings can do with the information, especially because visualizations are usually representing something, using spatial, using space and elements in it to represent something far more abstract. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, Barbara, talking about the, um, the metaphors and the use of metaphors in, uh, in data visualization, and uh, there's, there's this specific study and, and paper that you, you mentioned, and I think you describe in your book as well, where you, you simply show um, a very simple line chart and the equivalent with exactly the same information with two bars, And, and, and as you just described, people have a completely different way of interpreting these, um, these visual representations, even if they depict exactly the same information. And uh, I have to say that the first time I, I saw your study, it had a big influence in me because, um, I come from the school of, of 
data visualization thought or theory that um, the, the best way to look at data visualization is under the lens of accuracy. And I think many of us have been greatly influenced by the work of, of Cleveland and McGill on the on graphical perception and the idea that there are some, some visual channels that um, enable us to extract information from visual representation more accurately. Um, but then when I saw your study, I was like, well, that it, it, there's, there's so much more than that. And it's so much more complicated. And it does resonate with practical problems that I end up having all the time, right? That we as visualization designers may, may try to make choices under the lens of accuracy. But ac- accuracy, why it is important, is not the beginning and it's not the end of, of, of data visualization. And we can't really make a lot of decisions if we only look at visualization design under this lens. So uh, I was curious to hear what, 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 what do you think about, uh, about it? Oh, you're, you're summarizing my thoughts. Yeah, is, is we're rarely looking at a, a table just to find out what, what size to stockings I should buy given my height and weight, right? And there a table. <laughs> is probably better than any visualization because it's going to give me the exact number that I need and a bar graph is going to be it's going to be harder to find the exact number and a line graph too so again you have to look at what what am I using these data for what kinds of inferences am I making or is your your perceiver or observer or user however you think of the person consuming the data. What what do you want them to think, um, and, and and what's the best way of displaying it? And our our work on um, bar graphs and line graphs. This was work with a former student, Jeff Zucks, showed that plotting the same data as lines led people to think of the data as trends, because a line connects two points. In our case. So it's showing a relationship. It's saying A and B share an underlying variable. They just differ in the quantitative representation of that variable, but there is a trend, a relationship between A and B. Whereas bars are boxes, and they say there are a bunch of A's and a bunch of B's, and they're separate. We put them into different stacks. So that that... that encourages discrete comparisons. And we found that the, the data, dis, the way the data were displayed overrode the underlying variable. So that even um, discontinuous categorical variables when plotted as a line were seen as a continuous variable. So, and that seemed interesting that the visual form of the display was stronger than our understanding of the underlying variables. And we, we did this in the context of a whole series of studies where we were looking at, at people interpreting something visual and then giving them a verbal comp- something verbal comp- that was comparable and asking them to create a visual. So if we gave people trends and asked them to visualize it, they gave us line graphs. And if we gave people discrete comparisons and asked them to create a visualization, they gave us bars. So that was a, a kind of translation test 
that we got the, 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 the bars and lines translated quite well into trends and discrete comparisons, whether we started with language or started with the visualization. And we've done that with a number of different graphic, common graphic symbols. They really aren't devices. They aren't really symbols. And altogether, that research seems to suggest that these marks, lines and bars, arrows are another one, that they have meanings that are quite direct and reach people quite directly again, faster than words and more directly than words. Yes, and I have a question related, another a follow-up question related to that. Um, one thing I'm always wondering is um, that there is a somewhat small set of, of graphs that are extremely widespread and, and popular, right? I When I teach data visualization in class, I tend to talk... Uh, I tend to describe them as fundamental graphs because they are you can see them pretty much everywhere. I'm 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 talking about things like bar graphs, line charts, tables, the all the most basic things. Um one question I have how much of a do you think is an accident of history that that we have we we came up with these specific formats or Maybe there's something deeper, say in a in a parallel world, humanity would would, would create the same the same kind of graphs. Uh, that's 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 a curiosity that I've always had. Uh, is it is it in our brain or or how much of it is in our brain and the way in our brain is 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 structured and how much of it is a is an accident of history? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and we we can't do those experiments. <laughs> and and when and so much of it is Western. Oh yeah, yeah. Certain kinds of visualizations go way back. So if you cave drawings and petroglyphs all over the world, some seemingly by pre-humans, you can find map-like things that that go back. And often they're showing two perspectives at once, an overview and of the paths and the frontal view of the landmarks. So those go way back and, and appear in many places. So that's space. You get a rudimentary numbers and tallies, one line for each object, whether it's sheep or people, whatever it's counting. So time, and again, those seem to be widespread across many cultures. You get events, so stampedes, um, and you find in petroglyphs and in cave drawings stampedes of animals you f and Trajan's column you find deeds of war and so forth so those representing events are, seem to be pretty universal um, and representing time more abstractly so we have space abstractly in in maps, and you can even find star maps that go back to antiquity, but also calendars, seeing, representing time not just as a, an event like a stampede, but also time more abstractly. And people, objects, um, bows and arrows you find all over the world, and stick figures, so animals. So those seem to be things that people needed to represent long before they had written language. 
and went to great efforts to represent. And there are still the things that appear in newspapers and, and books these mm. days. So people, objects, and, and space, time, and number um, still appears. And there are dedicated places in the brain for many of these, not all, to recognize them. So it's another way that our brains mirror the world and, and our, the world mirrors our brains. Um, mm -hmm. As for the, going back to your original question, um, um, are these basic fundamental graphs something that grow out of the brain or out of our human experience? And I, I can't help but say yes. Bar graphs represent piles. You know, we stack up <laughs> our money and the pile gets higher when we stack it up. So it makes a higher, a higher bar graph. Um, in all over Europe, there are mostly in Italy, there are towers that people built that are really high and serve no <laughs> function. They just show that the local duke could build something that would be very tall, so he must be powerful. And they're falling down, some of them, these days. So, right. So I think at least bars feel, um, feel very much like... The, they're an expression, a direct expression of the mind. They also categorize things. So I put different things in different stacks, and that's something that we do in, in our kitchens, in our homes, and so forth. We categorize. So biographs seem very intuitive to me and very natural. Line graphs are connecting the bars. So if I have a whole stack of bars, then the line will connect them over time or over space and summarize them in that way so they feel like they're one step a little removed from, um, from the directness of the bar graph, but still direct in that way. I think we, we could go on forever describing yeah, all the metaphors that are behind every single graph out there, it's, uh, it's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, and tables. So tables, again, look like our, our, our bureaus where we put our socks and, and underwear yeah. and sweaters. Yeah, yeah. yeah like a shelf. Yeah, boxes yeah. for the different things. <laughs> make, so they're, they're a, a, a nice way of organizing our things and organizing our mind. And again, yeah. it's a way that we put our mind into the world. We put it into the world in gestures, facial expressions, and, and certainly in the, in the spaces we design. Yeah, no, that's such a powerful thought. And for me, that really connects so many dots in terms of why certain things work and others don't. And, and also, and I have much more ways to get inspired by just taking a good walk <laughs> and find a good data visualization <laughs> ideas in the city right. or in nature. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think we'll have to wrap it up. We're already over our usual time, but uh, for such a good conversation, we're happy to extend the programming, <laughs> but I think we should come to an end now. Um, thanks so much, Barbara, for joining us. Fascinating no, thoughts. Thank you. It, it's always yeah. a pleasure and I hope our paths cross soon. Um, Enrico, you're in New York. so Yeah. I would love to get together. I would love it. I, me too. Yeah. That would be great. 
Um, yeah, and for our listeners, check out the book Bind in Motion. It's it's really a great summary of uh, much more than we discussed today. We we just barely scratched the surface, really, of all the the, the great findings and interesting thoughts that are in there. And yeah, thanks so much for joining us, Barbara. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Take you. care. Bye bye. bye, -bye. Hey, folks! Thanks for listening to Data Stories again. Before you leave, a few last notes. This show is crowdfunded and you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash datastories where we publish monthly previews of upcoming episodes for our supporters. Or you can also send us a one-time donation via PayPal at paypal.me slash datastories. Or as a free way to support the show, if you can spend a couple of minutes rating us on iTunes, that would be very helpful as well. And here's some information on the many ways you can get news directly from us. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, so follow us there for the latest updates. We have also a Slack channel where you can chat with us directly. And to sign up, go to our homepage at datastory.es, and there you'll find a button at the bottom of the page. And there you can also subscribe to our email newsletter if you want to get news directly into your inbox and be notified whenever we publish a new episode. That's right. And we love to get in touch with our listeners. So let us know if you want to suggest a way to improve the show or know any amazing people you want us to invite or even have any project you want us to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Don't hesitate to get in touch. Just send us an email at mail at datastory.es. That's all for now. Hear you next time. And thanks for listening to Data Stories. Oh,